Today is December 2nd, 2020. Attorney General Barr says there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud. The Supreme Court defends religious liberty and a bipartisan effort unites to try to push through COVID stimulus. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and family to another episode of your favorite show. It's true, the rumors that you've heard, this is going to be the best podcast that we've done so far. Guys, it's the truth. I don't know what to tell you. We are bringing it in every single day, killing it, getting you all the best stuff from the left, all the best stuff from the right. We're looking at the good, the bad, and all that sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. If you are new to the podcast, welcome in. We are happy to have you. Our goal on this podcast is to create a community that unifies together and argues about and talks through and discusses all the difficult stuff from both sides of the aisle and does it in a way that is level-headed, that's reasonable, and always tries to find the middle ground and comes together at the end of the day. We think there's so much divisiveness, there's so much disunity in this world that we want to try and find, be the, I guess, the change that can be the harbinger of change that'll bring through a new era of good civil discourse and conversation. That's what we're going for here on this podcast. That's something you're interested in. If you want to hear a little bit of both sides of the aisle, come on with us as we go and try to find out all that good stuff that lies in the middle. So, with all of that having been said, let's move on in to our story number one. So, our first story of the day, Attorney General Barr stands up and he says that there's pretty much no evidence of widespread voter fraud. He says what pretty much everybody already knew. He obviously, I think, was biding his time a little bit because, and we'll discuss this in a second, but the Attorney General almost always is going to be having the president's back. Kind of just how it, was all, how it is, that's how it's structured, how it's supposed to be. You know, so if the Attorney General is coming out, Bill Barr's coming out and being like, uh, yeah, there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud, and he's saying that, contrary to what the President is saying, I think we can say uh, and conclude there's probably not a lot of evidence of widespread voter fraud, right? We can go ahead and say, Donald Trump, it's time for you to just quiet down. I know you're upset that you lost, but... Looks like you lost. So uh, we have the president coming out and saying there's voter fraud everywhere. We have him saying that it, uh, he's he's still pursuing legal thing, you know, legal cases in court. He's still filing suits. We have pretty much everybody else saying that that is not true. At some point, we've got to be like Trump. It's time to move on, man. Time to move on. So um, first of all, I think it would be helpful maybe, and this is something that. I don't know, maybe all of you guys know what the Department of Justice is, what the DOJ is, and what the Attorney General's role is there, but maybe you don't. So I figured I would go ahead and start a little bit on, like, what is the DOJ? So first, the Department of Justice, it was established in 1870 by President Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, and basically as a means by which to represent the citizens of the United States in enforcing the law in the public interest it plays a real key role in providing protection against criminal activity in a lot of ways. Um, it's made up of 32 offices, boards, divisions, and bureaus with a very, very wide range of functions. But all of it would basically, all of it is there basically to allow the American citizens and the American people to have a voice, right, in criminal justice. It's, it's there to try and protect the American people. But it also, in some ways, kind of acts as 
you know, a means by which for the president to have some legal protections as well, protections from legal challenges. Now, with that having been said, the Department of Justice shouldn't necessarily just be at the behest of the president, right? Like, I don't think a lot of people would feel super comfortable with the president just saying, hey, you go prosecute this person and say that they've done something wrong, uh, talking to the attorney general or talking to the Department of Justice, because that wouldn't be good. And that would be, in a lot of ways, pretty corrupt. But the Department of Justice is going to have the back of the president almost always because the president appoints that person for a specific reason. Um, so the, the attorney general, you know, has a lot of ways of supporting the president, you know, about, uh, specific things that they choose to, uh, litigate certain things that they choose to prosecute, uh, ways that they kind of structure the department of justice and the ways that they pursue criminal activity. Um, so for the most part, if your attorney general comes out and says something, uh, against what you are saying as the president, it is likely because as the president, you're saying something that the vast majority of Americans just don't agree with. Um, a great example uh, of how the attorney general sticks very close to the president is actually during the Nixon administration. Um, John Mitchell uh, was the attorney general at the time for Richard Nixon, and he went to bat for Richard Nixon, for President Nixon, all the way through his presidency. He, I believe was his campaign manager at one point or another as well in the election going into the 72 election. And he also went down with him over the Watergate scandal. Like, um, John Mitchell was charged with a wide variety of different things. Um, so I think it's fair to assume that most of the time your attorney general is going to pretty much have your back. Um, so while all of this is going on and while this stuff is happening, Attorney General Barr also appointed a special counsel to oversee the investigations of the beginning of the Russia probe. Okay, so he appointed John Durham. It actually was before the election on October 19th is when he appointed John Durham to go in and start investigating the beginnings of the Russia probe, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit in a second. But um, he, you know, kind of told Congress and kind of let, I guess, the word get out a little bit on December 1st. So yesterday, um, about having that special counsel. So it's apparent that, you know, the idea is that Attorney General Barr is still going to bat for Trump and still going to bat for, I think, the Republican side of the aisle and trying to prove that, you know, the whole Russia hoax, as Donald Trump would call it, or the probe into Donald Trump's administration and saying that he colluded with Russia in order to be able to win the presidency. You know, William Barr is basically coming out and being like, that's, you know, we want to investigate that because that looked really fishy. Stuff was going down that did not look correct. So at the same time that William Barr is kind of refuting what the president's saying, you can still see that he's kind of having the president's back in some way. Um, so to me, it, it, it's very difficult for me to believe Donald Trump when he says um, that there's widespread voter fraud and there's basically just this gigantic conspiracy against him that now even his Department of Justice is involved in as well. I just don't really see, uh, don't really see the the kraken as they can continue to call it. The Trump, uh, the Trump legal team keeps saying they're going to release the kraken or all of the all of the stuff that basically proves that what Donald Trump is saying is true. Haven't seen that. Don't really see any evidence of that. I know that's a that's a dead horse at, by this point, but. Uh, basically the appointment of John Durham, uh, we could talk a little bit about that because I think this is very important and this will actually remain in place, uh, after Joe Biden gets into the presidency as well. And Joe Biden, of course, could come through and, you know, maybe pull John Durham out of it or appoint somebody else for it, or even just discontinue it. I don't think that he would be able to just discontinue the election completely. He could fire John Durham, but that would actually put him in some pretty hot water in the same way that Donald Trump came out and said that he was going to fire Robert Mueller. It put him in a lot of, you know, hot water. So 
basically what it, what William Barr is coming out and saying is that um, the beginning of the Russian probe into Donald Trump for collusion looked really sketchy. Uh, it was, for the most part, all based on very, very scant evidence out of the Steele dossier, which if you've never read anything about the Steele dossier, it basically was this, I mean, absolute crapshoot of a dossier handed into the FBI Um accusing the Trump administration and a bunch of people of a whole lot of things that were totally unfounded. Uh, none of it was ever actually verified. And that was kind of the basis on which the FBI, um, you know, said that it was good to investigate the Donald Trump campaign. Um, didn't, doesn't look good. Right. And it definitely looks like there's going to be some people that end up kind of going down for this. Um, I personally did not have a problem necessarily with the Trump campaign and with the Trump administration uh, being investigated for Russia, Russian collusion. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing investigations and working to try and find uh, any type of malfeasance or anything that had gone wrong. Uh, but if it was all based upon incredibly scant evidence, which you know was there purposefully to try and do a hit on Donald Trump, then of course that's a problem. Um, many Republicans are very angry about the probe into Donald Trump and his administration because one, they say that it was founded on totally illegitimate claims, but two, because they didn't find anything for the most part, right? The only thing that they ended up trying to, you know, kind of get Donald Trump on at the end was saying that he obstructed justice and tried to, you know, keep Robert Mueller from being able to do his job. Really, honestly, pretty scant evidence for anything that Donald Trump did that was uh, like he was in actual colluding with he was actually colluding with the Russian government they didn't really find any of that Donald Trump for the most part was you know exonerated a lot of of the a lot of the original claims that they kind of were going after him for and they ended up kind of getting him and some other people on some very you know kind of loose charges towards the end um, but at the end of the day you know, I don't necessarily have a problem with you investigating, especially people in the highest levels of government. I don't think any of them should be uh, totally, uh, I guess, I don't know. I w they they can't be uh, gone after in any sort of way, any sort of legal way, right? Like that needs to happen. We need to be able to investigate people. It doesn't matter even if it's our president. So a um, couple of things to note here about this special counsel. One, John Durham has probably the most serious goatee that I've ever seen in my entire life. If you have never seen a picture of this dude, you have got to look him up. I mean, like this goatee has got to be the thickest goatee I've ever seen in my entire life. Second thing is also that Bill Barr is still making moves to protect Donald Trump and his legacy um, through this appointment and trying to go after him. So while Donald Trump is, you know, calling out Barr and calling out all Republicans, a lot of these Republicans are still trying to cement Trump's legacy, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, William Barr just isn't buying what Trump is selling about the, the whole voter fraud thing. So with all of that having been said, let's move on in now to our story number two. So our second story of the day, the Supreme Court defends religious liberty. So let's go ahead and hop in and take a quick look now from CBS. They did a quick story on this, uh, kind of describing what all happened, and then we'll get into the story a bit deeper. The Supreme Court has ruled against Governor Andrew Cuomo's coronavirus limits. The ruling protects religious freedom amid pandemic precautions that were being called unnecessarily restrictive for houses of worship in city neighborhoods hit hard by COVID-19. CBS's Dave Carlin reports from Midwood, Brooklyn. The justices narrowly rejected Governor Andrew Cuomo's COVID-based restrictions on religious services. The 5-4 to four decision was shrugged off as irrelevant by the governor on a Thursday morning phone call to reporters. The zone 
that they were talking about uh, has already been moot. Uh, it expired last week. So I think this was really just an opportunity for the court to express uh, its philosophy and politics. Uh, it doesn't have any practical effect. The justices in the majority, including new justice Amy Coney Barrett, warned the First Amendment right to religious freedom must be upheld. The state's position is the court's opinion only applies to now lapsed restrictions in Brooklyn. So, uh, yeah, so basically Andrew Cuomo's very mad about this, uh, which he's always mad about everything, uh, because it was in a large part kind of a slap in the face for him. So what happened? So basically uh, Cuomo sent out a, an order that restricted the size of religious gatherings um, in certain areas of the city. And those certain areas were based upon whether or not infection rates were growing or were very high. Said that you couldn't have a gathering of more than 10 to 25 people. Most of these areas were primarily Roman Catholic or Orthodox Jewish. Um, so uh, you heard kind of in what I guess Cuomo was saying there is he was basically saying like, listen, this actually doesn't have any bearing. Like the order that they're having that they're talking about right here actually expired last week. Uh, this was basically just the court trying to make a statement. Um, I can, yes, somewhat kind of see what Andrew Cuomo is saying there, but for the most part, uh, I think that it was the court, you know, actually trying to rule on something that would end up coming up again and again, especially if Joe Biden ends up coming into the presidency and starts to make more restrictions on religious gatherings or more restrictions on where people can and can't go. So, um, from the left side of the aisle, what is the left saying about this? So for the most part, Democrats have supported pretty widespread restrictions on civil liberties in the names of protecting people against the coronavirus. Um, they've been okay with shutdowns. They've been okay with not allowing, allowing religious gatherings, stuff like that, all in the name of not spreading the virus, right? And you can see this in incredibly democratically led and run places like New York, like California and LA. Um, they've had you know restrictions on all types of things like you know, not being able to go into restaurants, not being able to go and hang out with people of more than five people, more than 10 people. A uh, great example is this Andrew Cuomo uh, uh, restriction on religious gatherings and things like that. You can't really go to church. You can't have anything, even if it's outdoors. Um, so Democrats across the country have kind of united around this thing of we're okay with our civil liberties being restricted because that is what's happening, right? If you're saying that people can't gather to worship together, then you're re actually restricting the liberties and the civil liberties that they have. Okay. Um, and Democrats are saying we're okay with that. If it means that it's going to protect us and our families and the country against the coronavirus and things like that. So the right side of the aisle has the opposite as the opposite idea. So they don't want the government to be in control of or being able to tell you where you can and can't worship, what you can and can't do, where you can and can't go and who you can and can't see. The Republicans don't want any part of that. They don't want the Republican they don't want the government to have the power to tell you what to do at all. Um, they especially don't want governors or within the executive branch uh, to be able to hand down orders that impact the liberties of people without being checked um, and, you know, restricting people from being able to worship or go and do whatever they want to do. 
Um, in a lot of ways, I think that this the Republicans look at this um, not just from the religious liberties and religious civil liberty standpoint, but also that if they're able to restrict when you can and can't worship and how many people are allowed to be there, well, then who's to say that they're not going to come in and restrict other parts of your life as well? Um, and you know, what's to say that they're not going to come in and restrict the things that you do when it's not the coronavirus either? Um, a huge concern that a lot of Republicans have is that. If you allow the government to overreach and if you allow the government to have too much power, well, then it's almost always very, very difficult to get that power back. And so you don't want to give governors, you don't want to give the president this type of power because then when it's on the other side of the aisle and they're wielding that power, you're really not going to like it. So personally, I think this was a very good decision by the Supreme Court. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why. Um, one, I think that upholding the president, the precedent that the government governor can't control religious gatherings for any reason at all is of benefit for everyone. Um, like I, I really do side with the Republicans and the right side of the aisle on this because I would prefer for the government not to be able to tell me what I can and can't do at all times. Right. And this, of course, is going to have restrictions like I don't mean that I don't want the government to come in and enforce, uh, you know, murder, right? Like that's something that is technically against the, my liberty, right? I, I'm not, I don't have the liberty to go out and kill everyone that I want to. Of course not. But if I, if, you know, if I have to choose between uh, voting for or wanting people in power that are going to uphold my ability to choose what it is that I want to do, as opposed to people that are willing and able to restrict it, uh, whether it's for a good cause or a bad cause, I normally am going to side on the air uh, on the side of caution, right? I would not want for our government to have the power to be able to tell me what I can and can't do. This isn't just limited to religion, right? And this isn't limited to just religious people. Um, I do believe wholeheartedly that the church and state should be separated, of course, but once you start limiting people uh, for when they can and can't gather for religious ceremonies, whether it's for coronavirus or whether it's for whatever it may be, slowly but surely the governor, government does continue to inch that power forward. And you're able to see this throughout the entirety of American history and not just in American history, but throughout world governments as well. Um, the concern that the, rep, the, that the Republicans have that this is a slippery slope um, is absolutely true. You don't ever see governments coming through and taking over and taking away all the rights of citizens overnight. It's always a very, very slow and incremental process. So when the pandemic is raging in certain areas, I really do understand why uh, people think that you need to stay home from going to church or synagogue or, you know, a, your local mosque, whatever it may be. But the idea that the government can tell you when you when and when when and where you can't go, I don't love that. So um, whenever I think about a situation where there's civil liberties that are involved, um, the government stepping in and uh, either taking away those civil liberties or telling you uh, what you can do or not do. I always think about it if the shoe is on the other foot. So like right now, the Democrats are saying that it's okay for the governor to Andrew quote or for, you know, for Andrew Cuomo to step in and uh, to, to, I guess, roll back a lot of the liberties that these religious people have. Um, but what happens when it's a Republican governor that's coming in and saying that, you know, specific groups of Democrats can't do one thing or the other? Um, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, when the government has uh, less power to control and restrict the things that you do, oftentimes the better. Um, you know, the Democrats, I think, oftentimes have seemed like they're OK with the government having a lot of power until it's somebody like Donald Trump. 
right? Like they love Barack Obama writing a whole bunch of executive orders and pushing stuff through like that through the executive branch. But as soon as Donald Trump gets in there and doing the, and is doing the exact same thing, it's not nearly as fun. Well, I don't want either Republicans or Democrats stepping in and doing stuff like that. Personally, I don't care if they're Republican, Democrat, or anything in between. I don't want one person standing up and making unilateral decisions that's going to, that are going to affect my ability to be able to worship the way that I want to or go the places that I want to and do the things that I want to do. Um, there of course need to be, uh, restrictions. Like it's okay to tell people to wear a face mask, right? That's not restricting somebody's civil liberty. Um, forcing people to stay six feet apart is not restricting people's civil liberty, right? But saying that they can't go and, and worship, uh, the way that they want to worship absolutely restricts people's freedom of religion. So, um, we'll have to see how a lot of this kind of starts to shake out as, uh, Joe Biden comes into office. I would be very surprised if Joe Biden ever made a move to restrict worship gatherings or anything like that, because he does have a pretty staunch um, base of Catholics that follow him uh, and that voted him in. Uh, in a lot of ways, that's kind of the electorate that he's appealed to for a long time. So I would be very surprised to see Joe Biden go in and actually put anything else like out, like that out there. But um, the Supreme Court, I think, dealt a pretty hefty blow to Andrew Cuomo over this past uh, couple of days. So with all of that having been said, let's move on into our story number three. So our third story of the day, stimulus relief starts to gain a little bit more bipartisan support amidst talks from a uh, more centrist group. Look at the centrists coming out here and absolutely killing it. So uh, the group, the Problem Solvers Caucus, it is a uh, group made up of both Republicans and Democrats uh, in the Senate. Uh, bipartisan group basically aimed to bridge the gap between the two extremes with a um, the two extremes of both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, by trying to push out a stimulus bill that would hopefully kind of tap into both of the things that uh, the things that both of them want. Right. So, um, it's a $908 billion stimulus package. Uh, Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, came out and said that he thinks that Congress needs to pass something very, very soon uh, because if they don't, the econ economic downturn could be worse and the recovery could be even slower. Jerome Powell has stated, and it, very similar to Janet Yellen, um, is a fan of this very like Keynesian sort of economics where uh, the government dumping money in and stimulus into the economy uh, to help bolster it. He doesn't have a problem with that, obviously. Um, looking at how he handled the economy and everything at the beginning of uh, COVID-19 is a great example of he is okay with the government pushing money into the economy. So um, this bill would include more PPP loans, uh, small business aid, a bunch of small business aid. I think that would be kind of a, the largest portion of the bill. Um, help for schools, uh, money for vaccine distribution, extension of federal unemployment money, but no stimulus checks. Oh, everybody, everybody collectively is like, oh man, but I would love a stimulus check right before Christmas. Well, probably not going to happen. So according to the Wall Street Journal, the proposal also includes $288 billion for small business relief, including the Paycheck uh, Protection program, $16 billion for the dis distribution of coronavirus vaccine, $82 billion for schools, $25 billion for rental assistance, $180 billion for additional unemployment insurance, including $300 a week through March. So that would basically extend out that federal unemployment aid, which I think is going to be absolutely huge if they're going to do something. That's what they need to do. In addition, the plan would also give $17 billion more to air airlines. Wah, wah. Lame. 
God, it's like everybody else has to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. But then when you have large airlines that are going under, no, they don't need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. They they didn't have to plan for this rainy day like everybody else would have had to do. So airlines get, you know, what, a total 67, 70 billion dollars uh, worth of worth of money. Just a couple of airlines. Yeah, lame. So. It's basically right down the middle option for both of the parties, all right? So you've got Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, uh, Mitt Romney is a big signer on it as well, um, Senator, Democratic Senators uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Mark Warner of Virginia, Jean uh, Shaheen, and Maggie Hassan of, uh, or Hassan of New Hampshire. So all these people are, are your standard run-of-the-mill moderates, right? Like those are all the people that are in incredibly purple states or purple electorates, um, for the most part, they are going to be coming in and trying their best to kind of bridge the gap between the Republicans and Democrats, which needs to happen way more than it does. Um, but I think the interesting thing here is actually how Mitch McConnell has reacted to all this. So um, the the stimulus bill itself that they've proposed really is kind of split down the middle. i really think they need to vote on it and just try to pass it because it, it needs to be passed. Um, but Mitch McConnell has basically come out and said that if they pass relief, it will likely be included in a regular spending bill instead of on its own. Very interesting. So what that means in everyday terms, they have to have a spending bill passed by, I believe, December 12th. And basically what that is, it's the congressional budget. It's going through and saying, you know, the government's money that it can spend and all the money that it can spend on the various acts and, you know, whatever the government's going to be spending its money on. So basically what a lot of these politicians love to do, Mitch McConnell's great example, Nancy Pelosi is the queen of this. Okay. They see a really big bill that needs to get passed. And most, uh, most, it's almost always a spending bill because, you know, the government runs out of money, quote unquote, uh, by a certain date and they have to pass bills in order to be able to approve the budget as Congress, right? So when it, uh, all these politicians are great at doing this. They'll, they'll know that a spending bill needs to be passed and they'll know that it needs to be passed by a certain date. So right before it goes into vote or right before uh, they're going to close all of it out, they throw in some random thing that they really are trying to get pushed through that they know they wouldn't be able to get passed if it was just thrown out on the House floor, or the Senate floor or by itself. And they try to get it all passed at one time, right? Um, so for example, if I want a bill pass and I'm the Democrats and I know that it'll get shot down, uh, if it's solely a vote on that, like for example, something with, I don't know, pot legalization, right? I don't know. Most, the vast majority of Republicans, especially much more conservative Republicans are not going to be voting on that. So if they want to be able to get something passed along those lines or something like that, they may throw something in kind of backhanded and the Republicans are basically like, you know, they either have to vote on it or they vote the entire spending bill down. And then the Republicans take the blame for all of it going down. So, um, if my instincts are correct, which they oftentimes are not, but if my instincts are correct, this is going to come down to the wire here in the next week and a half or so, probably next Wednesday or next Friday or something like that. I'm going to be sitting down in front of my podcast microphone being like, oh, you know, none of the politicians can agree. And it's looking like we're going to go into a sequester and it looks like we're going to go into the government not being funded and it's going to have to shut down right here before Christmas, right here during the 
peak of the coronavirus pandemic right here as all these people actually need this stimulus bill to be passed. None of the politicians are going to be able to agree because they're all throwing a whole bunch of crap into the spending bill at the last second trying to get stuff passed. And it's not going to be a good situation. Um, this happens pretty frequently. Congress just can't agree. Uh, I remember during the sequester of 2013 when Barack Obama was in office, the only thing that got bipartisan support during that sequester was actually increasing the congressional salaries. Yep, that was the only thing that both the Republicans and Democrats could agree on while the entire government shut down. So... Um, Bottom line is, obviously, I hope that that doesn't happen, but I would not be incredibly surprised if it does. I think you're going to see both Democrats and Republicans trying to, at the very, very last minute, throw things into this spending bill to be able to, um, you know, get extra little oomph uh, right before it needs to get passed because there's the pressure is going to be on to not only pass a stimulus, but also to actually pass the full congressional budget. So uh, you may see the Democrats throw in stuff like canceling student loan debt, or you may see the Republicans throwing in stuff like uh, bailing out more large corporations. You know, at the end of the day, it's just standard politicking back and forth. That's just kind of the stuff that you always end up seeing. Um, we'll have to see what ends up happening with this specific spending bill and the stimulus. Um, I do hope that they are able to pass some sort of stimulus because coming up here on Christmas and, and the end of the year and a lot of protections are running out here on December 31st. So with all of that having been said, that's our last story of the day. Let's move on into the last segment, the best segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week was actually Giving Tuesday, which occurred yesterday on December 1st. It basically is this global, I think kind of this worldwide day where a lot of people get together and they give to the charities of their choice. Wherever it is that they want to give, they give money away. And I think that is absolutely awesome. Always warms my heart to see people being generous with their money and kind of open-handed with the finances that they've been blessed with, helping out the lowly in the community and helping out people that they want. Uh, at the end of the day, I think that everybody can, and this includes me as well, be more generous. And whether that's just buying food or buying dinner for your friends, or whether it's giving to a specific charity or a church or a group or organization that you think would benefit the money that you could give. So I think that that is awesome. And I hope that this is a good, I guess, reminder here right before the holidays that there are people that really could use and benefit uh, money that is gifted to them, especially in these times where money is very, very hard for a whole lot of families and a whole lot of groups of people out there during this pandemic and everything. So with all that being said, that is the show. Thank you for joining in on us today. Always remember to find me on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast with one T on my website at SplitTheDifference.com. I'm on Facebook and I'm on YouTube at Split the Difference. Find me there. Drop me a like and a subscribe. Give me a five-star review if you will do that as well. It always helps me out. As always, everybody remember, we're going to keep a level head, we're going to be reasonable, and we're going to always split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.